Hello and welcome to another episode of AdventuresIn.net. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today, co-host Mark Miller. Hey there, Sean. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. You know, it's uh, the weather is changing, uh, getting a little colder, but I actually I sleep better at night when it's cooler. So. Yeah, I think that's true. I've heard, I've heard not that about you, but I've heard that about humans in general. <laughs> that uh, that lower temperature, cooler temperatures. Sean, Adam's like shaking his head like maybe I have heard about you, Sean, and what temperature you sleep at. But yeah. Well, I just thought about full moon being like these days and some people can't sleep at night. They are werewolves or whatever, but maybe that doesn't apply to Sean. We don't know. Okay. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, oh that other co-host you're hearing there, that's Adam Vermonic. Yeah. Hello, folks. Very nice to meet you I again. I can say his last name, but he can't say mine, so that's why I'm using trust. That goes both <laughs> way. <laughs> that was Sean Claybo. See, you can. You got it. You got it. All right. Why don't you uh, introduce our, our guest today, Adam? Uh, yeah, sure thing. So today with us is Tomasz Masternak, a .NET engineer, which I presumably heard started with in, tw- in 2006, uh, since he mentioned our favorite question is, what .NET framework was the first one you had a chance to use? So, Tomasz, if you could introduce yourself and also share that fun fact. Exactly. I came prepared. So, uh, listening to previous podcasts, I knew that, that that does the intro question. So, I actually had to check, and it turns out that it was .NET 2.0. So, that was the first version that I, that I started with. Uh, I won't mention how long ago that was, but long enough, I guess. Uh, yeah, and long enough, the... yeah. At least you didn't have to go through the pain of not having master pages. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that that was the, the good part. But uh, I stayed with the platform since then uh, and the technology. I have to say that uh, now and then I look into different parts of the uh, uh, IT ecosystem, I guess. Uh, but .NET has always been the major interest for me. Uh, and uh, since the beginning, I, uh, I was pretty interested with distributed systems. So everything that was connected with messaging, sending information between the processes, uh, and figuring out how to build reliable systems that are built of different parts talking together, uh, was pretty interesting. Uh, I remember when WCF came out, and uh, when I was looking at it, I was I was pretty amazed by how well it was thought through, uh, all the channels, the uh, the ways in which you could configure that. That was pretty impressive, and uh, I think that that was the main interest for me for quite a while. And uh, more or less eight years ago, I had the opportunity to start working on. Uh, uh, an open source library which is called nServiceBus, uh, which actually has a, a company uh, and a group of people behind that. But since then, I stayed with with uh, uh, distributed systems for longer, and specifically with distributed systems that are based on uh, messaging technologies. So things like Azure Service Bus, RabbitMQ, uh, MSMQ in the old days, but still being strong. Uh, so that's that's the area of uh, of my interest and uh, my daily work. Cool. That sounds really cool. Um, so today, I believe our topic for, for this episode is something called TLA+. And Thomas shared his, uh, his YouTube video uh, presentation of his workshops and his, his blog code exactly once. Uh, so Thomas, if you could like... Tell us a little bit more what this TLA plus is. It's a little bit cryptic when we first hear about that. I agree, and and that was my impression when I heard it the first time as well. Uh, sounds pretty exotic. So so let me try convincing you that being in the .NET space, it actually makes sense to to look into that direction and at least consider that. Uh, so I was. That's one of the questions, uh, which is why should I even look at TLA plus what it is? And uh, before me going into the technical bits, let me give you a, a history from my personal professional work. 
I remember that on a couple of occasions when I was uh, writing my first multi-threaded code, the way it would go was that I would start writing a solution for whatever problem. I would spend the whole day, and usually the way in which I would build it would be uh, I would identify a couple of scenarios and go through that scenarios in my head, looking at the code and figuring out whether it will work correctly or not. And by the end of the day, I would be exhausted and I would say, oh, yes, but finally, I actually solved all the problems. It's good. I'm done. I would go home, get night's sleep, wake up in the morning, and I would be, oh, I think that there is this one more scenario in which it's not going to work. And then, <laughs> and then so the cycle would repeat over and over again for a couple of days until I would be like, I don't know, like, I guess it works. It's good enough. Let's think about something else. And, and, and I have to say that that was uh, the approach that I've seen around me. So uh, at least I wasn't the only person there. I think that that's a shared experience for, for a lot of us, especially when it comes to multi-threaded code, uh, to distribute the systems when you have messages flying around and processes talking to each other. So uh, some time ago, I think it was or maybe five years ago, I, uh, uh, I came by this TLA class. And uh, I saw it first because uh, that's uh, a language and other tooling that I will mention in a second that was introduced by Leslie Lamport. So Leslie Lamport is, uh, is a person who invented, discovered, whatever you believe, uh, Axel's algorithm, uh, the two general problems, that's his invention, uh, the logical clocks, consistent uh, snapshot. Uh, he, he stands behind a lot of things that were done in distributed systems to make them reliable. And uh, one of the things that he also uh, discovered or created was, was TLA class. And uh, the acronym state stands for Temporal Logic of Actions. And it doesn't ring a bell, or it didn't ring a bell for me when I first uh, heard it. But basically, the, I, I, I guess... In a nutshell, the way in which uh, you can think about it is that you can uh, describe your system using TLA class as a language. So it's it's a language which uh, looks comparable to C sharp. It has uh, a syntactic sugar on top of it so that it can look like uh, Haskell or C language. But you describe your system in that language. And uh, when you describe your system in that language, you specify two things. You specify which parts of uh, your system are done in an atomic way, in an atomic step, so that nothing else can interfere in that step. And secondly, you can model uh, parts of your system fail. And then what you say is, this is how my system starts off. This is the description of my system in time slot zero. And those are the rules in which my system can evolve. So this is what can happen in possible futures. You give that to something which is called a model checker. And that model checker, based on your description, is generating all possible histories that can happen in your system, all uh, executions. And it can also check for you whether some of uh, guarantees or conditions are always met. And I know that it's, it's pretty cryptic, but so let me give you an example. So for instance, what you can say is you can describe a trivial system, which is, let's say, a counter which can be incremented by two threads. And you can write a code for those two threads in PLA class saying the one thread is going to update the, the counter, the second one is going to update the counter. There are some rules that you put in, and then you can say the counter can never go above 10 or above 20. You give it to the model checker, and the model check checker is going to say, okay, for whatever I can say, uh, what you're claiming is actually true, or otherwise, it can say, no, actually, there is this history, this scenario that I can show you how the things can happen in your system that lead the situation which actually breaks your condition. So it can basically prove by an example that some of the things that you think your system cannot do or cannot break can actually happen. So, so this, is, this is the rough description or at least my mental model of how I think about TLA class. So this is kind of 
kind of like I, I believe that seems to me like the the mental exercise we do when you mention concurrent or parallel loop programming, then we just start waving our hands and saying, if this thread does that and then is stopped in the middle, then some other thread kicks in and does that. Nah, that's not gonna happen. So let's rewind, and the story goes on and on. That's exactly what is happening, and and uh, from my experience, I can say that. Uh, I can do I don't know three four executions at, at at one time. This is this is my brain capacity. And what you can do with the model checker is that you can check all of them, assuming that the system that you're uh, describing is not that big. Uh, and uh, one thing just to note here is that uh, to be realistic, uh, what you can do with TLA plus is you cannot take your whole code base. And try to translate it into TLA plus, and then to prove something or uh, to check some conditions in that code. You can you can actually do that for a fairly small piece of description of the TLA plus. So one part of the exercise is to actually identify parts of your system that are uh, good candidates to be model checked. So basically, figure out what is the ROI. Uh, and you're not going to model check the UI, probably. You're not going to model check your SQL. You are going to model check the, the parts of your system that you cannot mentally uh, think about in a way in which model checker can check them. And uh, the way that I actually started with TLA Plus was a very concrete, concrete problem. And that problem was a problem uh, in message-based processing systems. So uh, an example of a problem uh, that is there is, uh, is more or less this. Uh, when you have some endpoints or some processes that are communicating via sending messages, let's say Azure Service Bus, uh, let's imagine that you have a system which consists of four or five microservices or services, whatever, like star services. And what they are doing is they are sitting on top of Azure Service Bus or RabbitMQ or SQS, whatever, but persistent messaging. And what happens is that they are publishing events, they are sending commands to each other, but the routine in which they operate is more or less the following. Like there is some input queue, there is a thread that picks up a message from the input queue, looks into the message and says, oh, I need to update something in the database, generates a bunch of updates, inserts, and then potentially publishes additional messages to some other microservices. And the problem that, that's there, especially with the uh, modern messaging infrastructure, is that there is no transactional guarantees between operations that you do with messages and database. So we can have uh, a very interesting failure scenarios. And uh, uh, one of the quotes that I really like is that like, uh, when systems are correct, they also all correct systems are pretty much the same, but those that fail always fail in their unique ways. So it's it's like there are very interesting ways in which you can get into trouble with uh, with that scenario. So for instance, what can happen is that we can pick up a message or the thread can pick up a message. And, can, and if you acknowledge that message, so basically you tell to the broker or messaging infrastructure, I'm done at the beginning, uh, your, your thread can die. For whatever reason, and that messages disappears. So uh, probably a good idea is to acknowledge the incoming message only after everything else happens. Uh, so then you have a message and you want to make some operations in the database. So you do the operations in the database and you can commit the database transaction. What if you fail after that? The message that you picked up gets back into the queue and with Azure Service Bus after some least time elapses, it will reappear and you pick it up one more time. What happens with that duplicated message delivery? Uh, uh, probably you want to figure out how to deduplicate that message to turn processing that second attempt to be a no-op effectively. Uh, what can also happen is that after committing a message, you can uh, die before you send out the outgoing messages, if there are some. So. Uh, Getting a duplicate might be a no-op in the database uh, space, but you actually want to push the messages to make sure that they get delivered. So uh, that problem of consistent messaging is 
or what I call consistent messaging or exactly what's processing uh, is something which basically pushed me into that direction of TLA plus because that's one of those examples in in which you go through various scenarios and it's actually hard to figure out whether you solve the problem because there are so many things when your system can fail. Uh, and uh, just one historical comment here that might be interesting is that uh, in the past, that wasn't that big of a problem because we had distributed transactions. We had DTC or enterprise uh, uh, transactions in Java space. And what happened was that uh, the messaging infrastructure and database could actually be combined into a single transaction. And for various reasons, especially in the cloud environment, this is no longer the case. Like there is no way that your uh, PostgreSQL or uh, MS SQL is going to get into a single transaction with your messaging infrastructure. Okay, so so getting your problem, what I'm hearing is um, I need to pick up a message from the queue, do some processing in some completely independent system. So I cannot have transactions spanning both of those. I mean the queue and this other system. And I can die in any time, any time, right? So now comes the question, what should I do first? Commit here or commit there? But seems like we kind of have solutions to that. I mean, we have transactional outbox pattern. We know there is something we call item potency. You mentioned the duplication. Like, why would I even consider TAL plus instead of just, you know, taking those well-known and, and uh, battle-tested patterns? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great question. So, so, so let me ask with the uh, simpler part of that. So, uh, let me start with idempotency. Uh, idempotency is very often uh, given as a solution to the problem of duplicate delivery, deliveries. So whenever you have a problem that you can get a request more than once, let's just make the, the operation idempotent and that's it. And uh, that's my hypothesis, but I think that that solution came for a, from a very specific context that I think matters in, in this discussion. So I think that the context in which idempotency's solution came and is useful is in HTTP RCP-based communication. So what happens in that situation is that you have one process and a second process, and the first process is sending HTTP operation. If it fails, it's going to repeat that. Uh, if it fails, it's going to repeat it one more time uh, until it, it is successful. And usually what happens is there are two additional behaviors here. So the sender is not sending, let's say, 10 concurrent requests to the same microservice, but it's actually sequencing the operations as it's sent. Uh, as it's sent. And I think that that's a very important behavior. And if that behavior is there, then idempotency is the solution. It can be a solution because the receiver knows that it can get more than one request, but those duplications will come one after the other. When we are talking about messaging space, like Azure Service Bus, unfortunately, this is not the case because we can get reordering. So I can get duplicates, but in between the duplicates, I can get another messages. And then that idempotency uh, is not a potential solution. So let me give you a trivial example that's in one of the uh, blog posts that we wrote with, with Shimon Kobiega. So an example would be, Let's say that one of the process stores a state for a shooting range. And basically what you have is that there is someone who sets the position of the shooting range, and there is another service that can guess the position. So let's say that I set the the position of the shooting range to be 10, whatever, like on the X axis. And I'm sending commands, and those commands could be hit at position, whatever, and the second command is move the shooting range. move it somewhere to a random place. If I do uh, hit at position 10, uh, what I will get is I will uh, get the answer, the hit is is there, you get a point. Uh, but if the, the, uh, the scenario, the failure scenario or problematic scenario happens, that is, I'm hitting at position 10, then the range moves, and then I have a duplicate of that hit at position 10, what happens is that the receiving endpoint gets a duplicate which says, 
I, I, I'm aiming at position 10, but the shooting range is, is not there anymore. And it gets inconsistent response. So the, I think that usually the idempotency assumes that I can trivially detect the duplicates and return the same response. But with the messaging system, it's not that easy because the state can change between the duplicates as well. So that's why I would say idempotency usually does not happen. Or uh, 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 idempotency is uh, not a bulletproof solution for for messaging systems. Uh, uh, When it comes to the outbox, uh, I think that uh, one problem that we have in the uh, the software industry, or one of the problems, is is naming. It's, It's just hard. And, and sometimes outbox or a given term means different things to uh, in different contexts. So uh, the way in which I think about the, the, out, the outbox only is a very concrete implementation. And I think that uh, in one of the places that I've seen it is, is uh, microservices.io, which tries to uh, catalog the patterns for building microservices. And the, the way in which the outbox pattern is described there is that uh, when you get a request, prepare your business transaction, and then grab any outgoing messages and store them in the same transaction, and then have a background thread that looks into the outbox, which is basically a table that has an outgoing messages and push them asynchronous. And that, that's all fine. But once again, the problem is that when the duplicate comes in, you still need to be able to figure out whether it's a duplicate or not. So usually you need to tweak the Outbox implementation a bit uh, to make sure that when you get duplicates, you are safe as well. Uh, apart from that, exactly once is, is basically, I would say, trying to figure out what is essential part? What are the essential parts of the outbox pattern? And what are some of the extensions in which you can you, you can extend? And uh, the TLA pass that I was using uh, to, to, to figure out whether it's correct or not is based on a flavor of the outbox pattern. So so I think that uh, getting back to your to your question, Adam, I would say using outbox pattern is a good idea. But writing the outbox or implementing outbox in a correct way is way harder than it sounds. And I think that uh, by analogy, sometimes we can think that we have object-oriented programming patterns, which you can implement after reasonably, after you reasonably well understood the pattern, which is probably after a week, maybe two weeks. But with outbox, I think that there are some details that that you need to get right because otherwise it's just not going to work in in the way that you expect it to work. I think you tapped on a very very right topic, uh, like idempotency, and especially the duplication. People often just uh, just yell, "Do the duplicate your messages?" without necessarily specifying how to do that, that sometimes it can be very hard. Like I was actually recently solving um, solving that and blogging even about that, that I had to do the transactional outbox pattern, but the database was distributed uh, across data centers and there was no synchronous commit between these data centers. So how do I do that and implement this seemingly simple pattern uh, in that scenario? I want to ask one thing, though. I mean, we've mentioned idempotency quite a bit, and a lot of our listeners are probably new developers and things like that, and never heard that term before. So, you kind of can you kind of define what what that is for those listeners? Okay, I will do my best. Uh, I don't know. So, uh, I, maybe I will answer how I think about the idempotency and how I understand. It. So, uh, the, the term is sounds way too complicated then. Actually, is I think, and and uh, one way to think about it is, if you have an API, if you have a REST service, if you have whatever which gets messages and sends back responses, the idea is that when you provide a message twice, 
you will get exactly the same response. So idempotency means is that uh, your operation is not going, if you duplicate your operation, uh, that operation is not going to change uh, the state or have additional effect for the second, third, and fourth time when you when you execute it. So uh, one of the examples that are often uh, often given is from the HTTP space. So sometimes uh, it is said that uh, get operation or get verb should be always idempotently handled on the server, which means that if I go to the browser and I type in some address, no matter how many times I uh, click F5, it should not make any changes on the server. So it's like, it's it, it's only that one time which actually matters and not not the other uh, not the other executions. Is it fair to say, like in the example of the range, that mm-hmm. uh, item potency would be an example of that would be move the range to a particular absolute position, and something that would not be item potent would be uh, move the range a relative value. Is that is is that a simple example? Would that count, or would you still get into problems with moving to an exact position if I had duplicates and something in between? So I think that you touched on a very uh, on the crux of the problem. So I think that if you are talking about HTTP communication and when the operations are sent one after the other and duplicates can be only like in batches, then go to a relative position versus go to the absolute position solves the, like, it's, it's item potent. Because what it means is that I can have a situation in which I have an operation which says move to position five and then move to position five, move, move to position five, and those are my uh, duplicated uh, messages, and then move to position 10 and, and, and we're good. Uh, now, the problem with the... Uh, Persistent messaging is that you can have duplicates, duplicates which are interleaved with some other messages. And what it means is that I can have uh, a sender saying move to position five and then sending a message move to position 10, but the receiver can get five, 10, five. And from the receiver perspective, the content of message itself, it's not enough to, to figure out whether it's a duplicate or not and whether we should apply the idempotency uh, behavior on top of that. So what, what usually happens with uh, messages, and that's, like I guess, the de facto way to do it, is that your message needs to have an additional identifier, which is a logical identifier on the message. And then you can see that those two fives are actually the same logical fives, fives. And like, if the identifier is different, those are actually not duplicates. And based on that, you can, you can provide that idempotency behavior. One question I might have to that, when you say idempotency, and first time I learned about that, uh, I was thinking that it kind of means stateless operation or stateful, which results in the same way. Uh, like you mentioned, this get request, uh, mm-hmm. that it shouldn't kind of change that resource behind the scenes. But it's not necessarily the case, isn't it, right? I mean, for instance, caches can change. Um, it's not that it must be stateless, that the get operation and cannot change state at all. It may change state behind the scenes, but from the, uh, from the point of view of the observer, the state is equivalent, not necessarily identical, but equivalent. Uh, yes, that, 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 that's true. So I think that there is, there is uh, a piece that I would call a magic trick in, in, in all of that. So, uh, the library that uh, that me and uh, Shimon Kobega created is called Exactly Once Processing. Uh, but uh, and just bear with me, Adam. I will I will get back to to, to what you said, and maybe it's it's a a, a, a long derail. But just bear with me. Uh, but you you actually cannot have an Exactly Once Processing or Exactly Once Execution. So uh, you cannot write a distributed system in such a way that you can guarantee that. A, only a single thread, only once, will execute this this path 
in your program. What you can guarantee is that observable state that is accessible to the outside observer is going to be as if only one execution happened. So getting back to to your example, uh, Adam, uh, definitely the situation might be so that I get a get and I don't have something in my cache. So I need to pull that cache and get the result. But as long as no matter what happens inside, the result that the client sees is always the same, then it's idempotent. Like, because I cannot tell the difference uh, from the scenario in which it did nothing versus it actually grabbed it and computed and, and, and whatnot. And, and, and that's actually an interesting uh, uh, question as well, because there is another way to implement idempotency as well. So uh, the way in which it can be implemented as well is that uh, you can... Uh, store the state of your system uh, as a historical snapshot, basically. Historical snapshots. And for instance, what you can say is that uh, when I get a command that I need to execute, I get the current state, I compute the next state, I store that. And when I get a duplicate of that message, I get to the, the state of my whatever, as it was when I first time executed that message, I run the business logic and get the results. And as long as my business logic is deterministic and depends only on that snapshot, the outside results will be the same as well. So uh, it's definitely the case that there are some magic tricks that, that you can put inside. As long as you can make it so that from the outside it looks as if it, it's the same, then it's idempotent. So so I guess the idempotency is the behavior that you see from the outside. It's uh, it can be implemented in, in various ways. Uh, and that snapshotting approach, it's something that can be built, for instance, pretty easily when you have uh, event sourcing. When, uh, when you store the state of your business data as a stream of changes or events or whatever you call it, but basically deltas that change the thing that, uh, that you store in your, in your system. Okay. Uh... So we got a lot. So we had a Tommy City initially. We had some threads that were running in between. Then we diverged into messaging, idempotency, the magic trick, as you called it. So now, how do you make it simpler with TLA Plus? Because honestly, I have <laughs> no idea. <laughs> okay, so uh, so I think that you can make it as simple as it can be. I guess it's. Uh, and to be fair, I struggle with with all of that all the time. And and the reason that I went into the TLA uh, class direction is just because I couldn't think about it. Like uh, I had that continuous sense of insecurity. Like, is it going to work or not? I really need to figure out the way that will be like a safety net for me. And uh, what you can do with TLA class is that you can extract the key parts of your implementation. Let's say you're implementing the outputs pattern. Uh, you can have it implemented, let's say, in five classes, but you identify the crucial bits, and then you get those crucial bits, you rewrite them in, in TLA class, and they, then you say things like that. Uh, you cannot have two different answers to the same request that comes to your system. Uh, or uh, you cannot drop any message. So uh, you cannot respond with nothing. You give it to the machine, to the, uh, to the machine that checks it. And after going over those scenarios, doing some crunching, that machine is going to tell you whether it makes sense or not, whether what you're saying holds or not. And uh, I think that when I first heard about model checking, it sounded very exotic to me. And my initial idea was that uh, seems very academic. Uh, usually when I heard about this like magic something that is going to prove whatever, uh, my initial reaction was, uh, yeah, but it's not going to be very useful in practice. Uh, but I think that TLA plus actually is close to that sweet spot between the amount of effort that you need to put and the results that you're getting. So uh, just to give you some examples of uh, where in other places in the industry TLA plus is used. 
So the team that implements Cosmos DB, uh, they were using and are using, uh, for what I can tell, TLA Plus very extensively. Uh, people at AWS are using TLA Plus pretty extensively. Uh, people implementing MongoDB are using uh, TLA Plus. Uh, I think Cassandra team is using that. Uh, so whenever you have a parts of your system that you really need to figure out and make sure that that work correctly, that's a good investment. And uh, uh, at particular, when we do where we when we are building a service bus. Uh, sometime recently, I think it was some, probably a year ago, we are implementing a, a variation of of, uh, uh, of outbox pattern and that messaging messaging logic, and uh, we were doing that in a group with my friends, uh, with Daniel, Leila, and, and, and Shimon, and they never had any experience with TLA plus, and uh, they are great developer the developers, uh, great professionals, but I think that what I'm saying will extend to all developers out there. Uh, I think that after five days, uh, they were able to understand what TLA Plus is, uh, figure out the bits and pieces, and I'm pretty sure that they would be operational in that. So the effort to actually get into that space, uh, especially now, is not that big. I think that the resources are there. Uh, there are a lot of great tutorials that basically handhold you into uh, creating your specification. Uh, so whenever you get into that situation when, like, I just don't know whether it's going to work or not, I think that that's a good good moment at which you can think about maybe TLA Pluses uh, is the way to go. Tomek, is it fair to say that TLA Plus can can essentially find a uh, a problem? It can prove that you have a problem. Yes, but it can't prove yes, that exactly. you don't that, have problems. That, that's true. And, and is that true? That, Okay. So uh, that's exactly what you said. There is a part which is called a truth, uh, the theorem prover, which is uh, a bit of, of a different beast. Uh, but I think that at least my experience is that uh, to actually get that thing right, it's way harder. And uh, I think that even Leslie Lamport is, is not uh, encouraging developers to go into that direction. So uh, it's 100% correct. It can prove you wrong. It cannot prove that you're right. Now, there is uh, in the community of TLA Plus, there is something which is called a small model hypothesis. And uh, that small model hypothesis is a hypothesis, but it's something which is based on experiences of people using TLA Plus. And it basically says that uh, you don't have to specify, uh, or the, the other, maybe a bit differently, you don't have to check uh, your system as if there are uh, a lot of moving parts in it. So to be more concrete, just not to get into the into the weeds, uh, let's say that you can, uh, the model checking for uh, messaging could be, I have a single endpoint that has two threads. Uh, it starts off with three messages in it and two records in the database. And uh, an argument could be made, but this is a toy example. Like in your normal system, you will have hundreds of threads, millions of rows, a gazillion of messages, and I'm exaggerating, but like what I gave is a trivial example. But the small model hypothesis says is that if you have problem in your system, the model checker will find it in a very small model. So basically the experience in the community is that uh, there is yet to be a situation in which your small model passes and then when you extend it, it actually fails and, and the model checker finds, uh, finds a problem. Uh, uh, so it's, it, it's not a silver bullet, but the experiences in the, uh, uh, in the community show that it's actually useful and, and, uh, and helpful. Uh, and to give you, a, a, I think, a pretty interesting anecdote, I, uh, I don't know if that, that is a practice still in the Cosmos DB team, uh, but from what I could tell, the way that they operated was that they would always have a specification for the key parts or crucial parts of their system. And whenever they would have a bug, they would first uh, fix it in the specification. So basically, they would fix it in the algorithm, and only after that, they would apply it into the implementation. Uh, 
I think it could be very stressful, especially if it's like a critical and you need to start with the, uh, with the, uh, uh, with the TLA class first. Uh, but once again, from what I could tell based on the presentations and informations that are available out there, uh, it was very useful for, for, for Cosmos DB team. So when you take this TLA plus, you mentioned that you need to implement your problem in, in the TLA plus language. How do I actually know whether I re-implemented it correctly in TLA plus or whether I introduced a bug when translating my C sharp to TLA plus? Yeah, a related um, question to that is, uh, I, was, I was thinking, where do you, do you edit TLA plus in Visual Studio, VS, VS Code, or does it have some sort of other editor? And then I, I assume it has its own compiler, right? Correct. So let me start with the tooling. So Visual Studio Code is the, the way to go. There is an extension uh, and it does the job. Uh, that being said, I think that there is still some work that needs to be done uh, in the uh, developer friendliness. So you don't get IntelliSense, for instance, or uh, the compiler errors might not be very, uh, very friendly and sometimes you need to spend some time to figure out what's wrong. But basically, the workflow, at least for me, is that I would have a Visual Studio opened uh, on one screen, and I would be looking at crucial parts. I would have Visual uh, Studio code in an, on my uh, second screen, and then I would be translating what I have in C-sharp to TLA+. And uh, then compiling TLA+, giving it the, uh, the conditions to check, and running the model checker, uh, and the model checker would tell me whether this holds or not. Uh, when it comes to how do I know if the translation is correct, the answer is you don't know, like, or maybe the other way around. There is no safety net, or there is no, like you cannot extract model model from the code. And I think that the main reason is that usually that specification uh, describes different things or more things than are just visible in the code. So uh, when you look at the C-sharp class, the state that you see expressed in the code are variables that are there, variables available in the scope in which your code operates. When you uh, look at the TLA's uh, class specification, you are describing the state of the whole system. So that specification is going to model what is there in your database, which is not visible in C-sharp code, what is there in your message queue, which is not visible there, how many threads are executing, which is not visible in your C-sharp code. So that specification for distributed system space, uh, by definition, talks and describes more than you can see in the code itself. And the other thing, to, to bear in mind is that if you want to create a model in TLA plus, a specification which is useful, you need to know your system in and out. So you need to know uh, when an exception can be thrown. You need to know what are the transactional guarantees of the messaging system and your database. Uh, you need to know uh, what, uh, uh, what concurrent bits of your program are actually can interleave like what is the concurrency, possible concurrency uh, uh, in your code. So uh, it might seem that the model is, is simpler, but to get to that simplicity, uh, it actually takes an experience and good understanding of your system. Uh, one of the, I guess, ways in which I think about it is, is more or less this. Uh, we as software developers, we are doing modeling. And uh, the way that I understand modeling is uh, is just removing parts of the reality which are not important in, for the problem that we are solving. And what is the problem that we are solving when we are modeling our system in TLA class? Uh, what we want to express is the behavior which is important from the what can go wrong. And though this is basically concurrency that happens in your system and independent failures that can happen in your system. So you need to know what is the behavior of, of your system from the perspective of concurrency and what can go wrong. And only with that information, you can actually specify your TLA plus uh, 
model in such a way that it's useful, meaning that it will really uh, reveal some of the problems that might be in your, in your system. So it's possible when I'm modeling something in TLA plus to, to, I'm imagining it's like a class and it's got properties. And one of the properties might be, these are the conditions on WIG, or these are the kinds of failures mm-hmm. this particular class would uh, incur. Yes. Is, it, is so, that uh, kind of uh, true? Is that what it's... If you use the, uh, the, let's say, the C syntax, what you can do is you can say, when the system reaches this point and executes, let's say, the operation that picks up a uh, message from the queue, it can either do that successfully or it can fail and then it goes into that state. So basically, uh, your code need to, uh, or that model or that code expresses alternatives that can happen at various points in execution. And I know that what I'm saying is very kind of wavy and, and, and very abstract, but uh, in the uh, GitHub repository for exactly once, we have uh, a very short uh, workshop, which I think consists of six or seven exercises or steps that uh, goes through how do you create a specification for Outbox and how you model check that. So if anyone is interested, I think it, it should take roughly an hour, an hour and a half to complete, just to get the, the taste of what it takes to write that specification. It gets you uh, on the journey of this is the problem that you want to solve. And those are the steps in which you would basically start checking your system. And the way in which it is structured is that it starts with uh, one idea, and then the model checker says, oh, there's a problem there. So we modify the idea, and it says, okay, now that's fine, but there is another problem here. And there are iterations in which we go, and at the end, we end up with something which doesn't fail at this office. That sounds really cool. So I think we can recommend our listeners to take a look at this workshop and see how to get it working. Uh, any other final thoughts before we wrap up? Guess. Is there, is there some good learning resources out there if somebody wants to pick this up? Yes. So uh, I would recommend uh, Learn TLA Pass by Hillel Wayne. And I, uh, I hope that I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, if, he, if, if he's going to listen, I apologize if I butchered his name. <laughs> but but there uh, so that's a very good intro, and he actually uh, wrote a book which is a very good introduction to uh, TLA Plus. It's called Learning TLA Plus. There is a book by Leslie Lamport which is called Specifying Systems. Uh, I would not recommend it as the first uh, uh, reference material after doing some work with with other materials, but that's a good step. And Leslie also has. Uh, 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 and online lectures, which basically go through the basics and then to a more advanced bits. Uh, and I think that those are those are the main the main learning materials that I would recommend. Okay, great. Um, let's move on to picks. Uh, Adam, okay. what's your pick this week? Okay, so my pick for this week is actually something that we probably all know. It is called VirtualBox, but a kind of different way of using that. I was actually recently playing with how to run a virtual machine inside a virtual machine inside a virtual machine. And I was very happy to learn that, well... You can do that. The only trick to do that is you need to take like Windows 32-bit version as the guest uh, environment, and you need to take an old enough virtual box that will not yell about Hyper-V or lack of of, um, hardware-supported virtualization. So if you take versions, let's say 5.2.24, which is pretty old now, then you can actually run virtual machine inside a virtual machine inside a virtual machine. Um, I do have at least one business case. I won't bore you with that, uh, but I guess our listeners may have some others. So VirtualBox, the way to go. And to be a little bit more specific, VMware player couldn't do that, neither, nor could a Hyper-V. So that's why I call VirtualBox specifically. Very inception Very inception Yeah. 
Sean is is Adam. <laughs> Sean is Adam like hacking into governments? What is he doing it, with it this? Reminds me of a, this a house I grew up with. In uh, in the bathroom, we had two giant mirrors. You know, one in front of you and one behind you, and you would just see this big tunnel of reflections as each one reflected into each other. So, wow. That was exactly it. <laughs> All right, Mark, what's your pick? Uh, Netflix, The Recruit. Uh, it's it's not bad. I'm uh, I think epi- three episodes into this, um, and and I'm liking it. Uh, you know, usually pilots, the first episodes are are hard. You know, they've got some rough edges, but this thing I thought was uh, was really well done. Um, there's some hints that the uh, main character is uh, maybe a little crazy, uh, and, uh, um, and and it's great. I, uh, by the way, I watched Night Agent uh, on your recommendation, Sean, and I actually think so far the oh. recruit is is in the same okay. style, but I think it's better than I'll Night check Agent. Check that out. Yeah, uh, my pick this week is also another show. It's Ahsoka, so spinoff of Mandalorian. So. I wouldn't say it, it's, it's as good as The Mandalorian, but it's still, it's got its own, you know, story. It's very interesting and things like that. So if you want to watch something that deals with Jedis and Star Wars and even has a little bit of Darth Vader in it, I'll give a little bit of get, uh, giveaway there. So check out Ahsoka on Discovery+. Plus. All right, Tomek, do you have a pick for us? Yes, so uh, my pick is uh, a YouTube channel which is called Asianometry. So uh, that's a person who is based in Taiwan, I believe, but has a very cool uh, episode on the uh, transistor industry and how the microprocessors are made with modern technology uh, and also on the history of uh, computing. So the rise and fall of some microsystems, how the uh, first PC was made, uh, very interesting documentaries, very very well made technically, and for what I can tell, very accurate technically. So everyone, uh, every episode is roughly twenty five minutes, so it's a perfect pick to when you have a pause and just want to decompress to uh, hear to something interesting. Uh, I would recommend that. Okay, great. Well, thanks to Mike for coming on the show. That was a uh, very, very interesting. And thank you for the great invitation. Job. I yeah. really enjoyed that. Yeah. If our listeners uh, want to get to the show, they want to reach out to us, they have questions or have feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on X slash Twitter. I am .NET superhero. I am also on threads. If you want to reach out to me there. Is there a way that they can get in touch with you to if they have questions? I think that at Masternak uh, on X not Twitter, I always get it wrong. <laughs> uh, that's the go place. So uh, anyone that wants to talk about the other class, don't hesitate, just reach out to me there. Okay, great. And we'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET.